Happy White Paper Day, everybody. <laughs> a very good day indeed. All right. Yeah, so I guess we'll start off. So obviously the white paper was released into the world 14 years ago today. Dan or Rizzo, I'll kick it over to you guys. I don't know where you guys want to start or if you want to start with the origins of it or when you guys first learned about it. I guess I'll kick it over to you guys. Dan or Rizzo, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, happy to kick it off. So uh, Pete Rizzo here, editor of Bitcoin Magazine, you know, posting often about Bitcoin History, yeah, I didn't read the Bitcoin white paper till you know much later than October thirty first, two thousand eight. Unfortunately, so I actually uh, didn't come across the white paper until after I learned about Bitcoin in twenty thirteen. So this was over the summer that year, and I think I remember I was writing for a, a payments news publication, so writing about mobile payments and payments technology and. I think it was listed as a required summer reading for, for people in that industry. So I, I read it. I will be honest, but I, I think it probably took me several years to understand any part of the white paper. It's an incredibly dense technical document. I, I you know, think recently I have a better understanding of it, but it probably took me... I don't know, probably like five or six years to have a really, you know, good grasp of all the concepts in it. So I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but when I first read it, I honestly don't know if I got anything out of it, <laughs> out of it, and it certainly didn't inspire me to, you know, purchase any Bitcoin or get more interested in the subject. Honestly, I think the first time I read it, it was a bit obtuse, and you know, it's taken taken a lot of time and research and understanding to really appreciate. So I, th- I think that's one of the things I've tried to do. I, I put out a thread this morning with some fun facts about the white paper, but yeah, still a difficult read, right? You know, it's an interesting historical document, obviously very relevant. Certainly inspired a lot of people to begin working on Bitcoin, but yeah, not not for everybody, right? It's certainly not light reading. Yeah, I think, you know, we'll we'll dig into, I think, kind of the history here in a minute. But like, starting from a very high level, I actually think the white paper is a very bad place to point newbies to first. It's like super technical. (laughs) It's got a lot of jargon in there that's very technical related. And it was funny because in in the beginning, you know, Pete, when we first got into this back in like the 12 to 14 era, and even I would say through 15 and 16, a common, you know, reference that people would always drop is, oh, you're new to Bitcoin, read the white paper. And I think that's why both of us probably put off reading it for a little bit. I I did as well. Also, it does take quite a bit of technical know-how to grow to really understand it. So I I think that it was, I I really don't like the, I'm just kind of throwing out a controversial, controversial opinion here. I don't like it. I don't like to point noobs to the white paper. I think I think there's so much other great content out there, you know, whether it be written content, YouTube videos, et cetera. There's so many good ways that Bitcoin has been explained in a much simpler, non-technical way. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. I would say definitely wouldn't. I I don't refer people to the Bitcoin white paper today. And I'm honestly like surprised at the longevity that it's had and just the influence. I think I tweeted today about the number of words in the white paper. So it's only, you know, around 2,700 words uh, compared to some other historical documents but you know it's, it's interesting that it's become such a like a pop culture phenomenon i saw a pair of shoes like somebody tweeted with the white paper today you know i have like a shirt with the white paper on it you know it's kind of funny like if you're a scientist you know if you ever wrote a white paper like if you thought it would have the cultural impact <laughs> of the bitcoin white paper that's kind of like a curious element of it it's become something that's been very identified with bitcoin and like part of the pop culture around it but it's kind of funny because yeah again i think it's it does take years to understand the white paper, I think, in, in any real way and like enough to have a significant opinion on it. I and mean, it's almost 
easier to, to start understanding Bitcoin by reading Satoshi's emails, right? So there's a kind of a famous, yeah. you know, peer-to-peer foundation. So, you know, after Satoshi kind of releases the white paper, he had a very specific audience with the white paper, right? So he's writing to the cryptographers and the cryptography mailing list, and he gets kind of a lukewarm reception there. They sort of boot him off the mailing list. And then, you know, he goes to other forums. And I think he's almost more colloquial and direct about his intention of Bitcoin. And that's another thing about the white paper that's very interesting is that it it doesn't really explain the intent behind Bitcoin at all. It really is just written for... I think almost he was trying to make an argument to the technical community that they should take Bitcoin seriously. And he even sort of alludes to in, in later text, right, that, that he wrote the white paper after. Yeah. That, yeah, I think he was almost it, trying to kind of prove to the audience that his idea was worthy of, you know, being considered. And I don't know how well it worked out. Totally. I, like his first, you know, his first peer-to-peer foundation, his first post is actually makes an extremely eloquent case for Bitcoin's value prop. You know, I think yeah. it, in the first paragraph he states that, you know, we have to trust that banks will hold our money without lending it out in, in an egregious manner. We have to trust the government not to print too many dollars or, or euros and devalue it. And he, he highlights the core value prop really, really succinctly in like one paragraph where he, he basically just frames it as like, look, there's all this trust inserted into the existing financial system. What if we could replace that with a system that had trust minimized or trust less? So, you know, the white paper really doesn't talk about that at all. That also the white paper doesn't talk about, I don't believe it talks about anything monetary policy-wise, anything regarding yeah, yeah, trust. Yeah, it doesn't, no. Or it does, it does talk about trusted intermediaries. But, you know, Satoshi also talks, like, I, I don't believe there's anything in the white paper about, the like, the 21 million hard cap or anything, right? Or block size or anything like that. No, yeah. J- Jameson actually had a really good tweet this morning. He said, you know, number of things not described in the white paper. And it's, it's pretty long. It's a script, ASICs, multi-sig, addresses, mining pools, 21 million cap, eight decimal put precision, HD addresses, 2016 block difficulty retarget. So, yeah, a lot of stuff missing. And I think it's, yeah, it, it was during the hard fork wars that I think like the, the white paper became this battleground for kind of narrative building because everyone wanted to point to their f- version of Bitcoin as the true Bitcoin, right? Like our Bitcoin has been christened by the god Satoshi and that that narrative, you know, is the only correct narrative. And so there's just so much dishonest framing with the white paper. And that's where I, I did a tweet storm back in the 2018, 2019 era and people forget that there is a pretty big battle between, you know, the B-cashers and the Bitcoiners. B-cashers are long gone extinct. I mean, it's obviously they were grossly incompetent with their understandings, uh, understanding of how blockchain works and their, I would say, primitive understanding of user experience and, and why things are valuable for folks. And so, you know, I, I wrote a tweet storm debunking some of this and, um, you know, where I read a lot of Satoshi's early writing outside of the white paper. And I'm like, wait a second. So like... This entire faction is literally just cherry picking this one document and they're ignoring yeah, yeah. everything that Silver wrote. <laughs> yeah, I think that was it's the most that the was almost like the most endearing thing about the small block camp is that they, they seem to like reject the implicit authority of the Bitcoin white paper, whereas the, the Bcash group did not. But yeah, I think it's almost like a legacy of any important historical document to some extent though. You know, because uh, just thinking about this, you know, thinking about the constitution and other documents. I think it's very common for like social groups, right? Like if there is some sort of founding document or charter to then fight about it. It does feel very much like we've come to an end of that era, though, and that it's not, you know, the, the white paper isn't, it's sort of appreciated in, in retrospect, but it's no longer kind of the active battleground of discussion that it was, you know, for some time. 
Totally. Yeah, exactly. But it was just so weird that they never took any of his other writing. And in fact, I find most of the other writing, like you mentioned, like you said, actually quite a bit more fascinating than the white paper. Satoshi had a really interesting style of conversation where like he, he talks with like a very lay person's, you know, sort of vocabulary talking style. He's very forward and clear been pretty patient most of the time i think you know not not super quotable but <laughs> got some good quotes <laughs> yeah there, there's some funny parts where like you know it's the uh, i don't have time to explain it to you sorry where he gets like a little you know he <laughs> gets like a little terse but like a little bit uh, you know a little bit a little bit more kind of edgy but overall i mean he explains bitcoin like the like i loved his analogies of bitcoin as like a precious metal you know, where he is trying to convince people like, they're like, well, how does something have value? You know, the, the whole theory, you know, it's getting really deep into like money, the theory of money, right? So I think his writings are fantastic. And then, of course, it's sort of like any religion, right? You've got the white paper, you've got his peer-to-peer foundation and the Bitcoin Talk forum posts. And then, of course, you have like his the emails, right? And the emails I would consider kind of the, I would, I would consider like you've got the white paper and the forum post is like, all puns intended, the gold standard of, of like, we know definitively Satoshi wrote this. And then the collection of emails that people have, I would consider those to be like probable, probable, but not sure if that's official canon. I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's almost like the you have to think about the white paper as a technical document. And then, you know, he gives sort of the economic justification for Bitcoin, you know, mostly colloquially through the forums. I, like the white paper does mention money like a few times. So, you know, he sort of mentions that, you know, if you trust people to run a mint, like the, you know, he makes the quote, like the entire money system like depends on that. Right. So he does like make reference to money or Bitcoin being a money, but it's almost like it, it, there's nothing directly stated in the paper about that, yeah. uh, nor does it like, nor is there even a section on like his attitude on money, right? He says like, I think at one point, like creating value out of thin air or taking money that never belonged to attacker, right? So he, he, he references Bitcoin as money sometimes, but it, yeah, it really is the economic justifications like, and, you know, colloquialisms like definitely come from the forums. Yeah, that's where I think, you know, what's interesting, too, is that, yeah, like a lot of people kind of look at it as like, oh, he just talks about merchant payments. But the thing is, like most of the cypherpunks, they wanted like this, they wanted like an anonymous e-cash. Like that was, that was kind of like the holy grail of this group. They weren't necessarily like deep economic, you know, monetary policy thinkers. These were more of like, they wanted to be able to buy drugs, right? Or they wanted to be able to buy things that were illegal or they like they really liked the censorship resistance capability of it, but almost none of the cypherpunks had given much thought at all, maybe other than like Hal Finney, to like monetary policy. So when he writes the white paper and publishes it in the, in, on, the email, on the email list, you know, he like you said before, he targeted that message just for the cypherpunks. And so... You know, that's where like the big blockers had this very dishonest framing where they're like, first of all, they didn't even look at any of his other writing. They just looked at the white paper and then they didn't use any of the context behind it, like who the audience is. <laughs> well, I also think that like when Satoshi was using the word merchant, there is like a cultural like, you know, so words, you know, they have like a lineage within certain conversations. And the, the thing to remember about the cypherbuck mailing list is it's a conversation about money and economics and, you know, cryptography that goes back to the 90s. Right. So there's just this lexicon with which they're interpreting words and like we don't share those interpretations so like just kind cash of is, 
cash, yeah, is, cash a- is another one, right? But yeah. like merchant or mint is like a good example because in a lot of the earlier prior digital cash designs, like people might not know this, like there was like a hierarchical design that was sort of assumed, right? So there was servers that would either be like banks or merchants and often like in these designs, so like David Chom's DigiCash was, was one of the first, there was you know, essentially this idea that like there would be users, there would be merchants and banks, and then they would have distinct like roles within the system. So there was almost like a hierarchy, right? Sort of the way that the traditional economy kind of works. But Bitcoin yeah. was peer to peer, right? So that it, it essentially, you know, obliterated the need for that, right? So when he's talking about merchants or mints, like he's talking really about these kind of like trusted parties within that framework that were necessary before. He isn't really talking about merchants and like the online stores in that sense i don't think yeah that and, and the word cash you know a lot of people d- very dishonestly took that word and framed it as like oh he wanted it you know cash to cat like cash small cash transactions no the word cash used by cypherpunks means like one-way payments that can't be reversed and are as anonymous or pseudonymous as possible and that's that's what the word cash meant because in the cypherpunk world <clears throat> that's what the, that's what their holy grail was was a was an, an e-cash or a digital cash that was, you know, one way couldn't be reversed and, and had some measure of privacy. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. Let's touch, let's touch on some of your other bullets. I thought, let me, let me pull it up real quick. I had it up here. Oh yeah. The, sure. uh, I think initial, initial reception, you know, was, was kind of, I was very, always very curious about that. Just seeing like people's first reactions. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I read through the, so I actually read through the cyberpunk list like fairly linearly recently, and I, I was actually pretty shocked to see how much discussion there was after he released the white paper. I had kind of thought that it was sort of dismissed because that's sort of the way that people had framed it to me. But then reading the emails sequentially, there was actually like a ton of conversation. It's actually like one of the most talked about things uh, that month. But it's also interesting in that, yeah, the conversation is almost universally negative and but I also like to the credit of the critics at that time, you know, they actually were, you know, pretty adept at like figuring out what essentially the modern problem is. Right. So like scaling Bitcoin is still something we talk actively about for more transactions. Right. So like the first comment essentially identifies that pain point. You know, they were wrong and like, you know, there wasn't anything about that that issue that like stopped the system from working in practice. Right. And I think this is where you get to like. Gwern is one of the cyberpunks who writes, you know, about Bitcoin pretty early on. And he says, effectively, the thing that Bitcoin got right is that it was able to work in practice for long enough to people to disagree about it and improve it. So, but, you know, they were actually, you know, their criticisms are essentially something that we're still working on today, right? The blockchain has to be distributed amongst a certain number of users. You know, the blockchain is made up of data that everyone has to store. And then, you know, that's essentially the design limitation, right? So they weren't essentially ignorant right we think of bitcoin critics today as being people who like you know talk about how bitcoin is boiling oceans right they, they weren't they weren't quite at that level they were technical enough to understand the proposal and i, I would argue they were their critiques were essentially you know they that is the current state of criticism against bitcoin today to a large degree i think they were just wrong about like how long the system could exist or that it would like actually work at all in practice if that makes sense yeah no it's 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 pretty funny to see like you know it <laughs> A lot of the, like, of course, the nuanced convert, like, it was pretty hard to grok the basics, you know, so a lot of people, I think, like, had questions around, like, well, how do things have value? And, 
and like where will it how will it gain adoption and that's where people you know, always forget like when when folks were mining back then there wasn't really an economic incentive <laughs> they bitcoins weren't worth anything there wasn't there wasn't a price for a long time and you know it was more of just like people it was, it was more of a, a curiosity sort of project sort of thing of like oh i'll just play around with this and you know i think that even satoshi so I'm, I'm going to extrapolate here quite a bit, and you, you can check me or, or agree with me, but the, the issuance schedule for Bitcoin, I think, is quite aggressive. And I think Satoshi, and also like where Satoshi put the decimal at 21 million instead of 21 billion, I think Satoshi was actually a little less sure about Bitcoin than the rest of us are. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why do you say that? Well, I think he put it. I think he put the hard cap at twenty-one million because he felt like breaking the dollar, like like breaking a buck, would make make it be perceived as valuable. Like it would, it would sort of be a shelling point, of, not a shelling point, but like a like an inflection point where people would go, "Whoa, okay, Bitcoin's at least at least worth a dollar." Right, right. I see. Yeah, right. it, we can take this to an extreme, right? Like if there's only ten Bitcoin, then the value would be it would be extremely expensive, and if there's a 21 trillion Bitcoin, then they might not feel that that valuable, right? So just because they'd be worth like what Doge are worth and maybe people's perception, oh, it's only worth a penny might affect how they think about it. It's actually a really fascinating question of like, where's the appropriate place to put the decimal? But if, if I were Satoshi, and I think this is actually something Satoshi did wrong, because the unit bias problem, as we've seen with Doge and XRP and everything else, does work. People feel like they have more if it's there's a higher number of total units. You know, Satoshi, I think, put it at 21 million because he would consider that to be pretty successful if it was worth a 21 million hard cap. But I'm totally extrapolating. I, well, it's kind of interesting. Like, if, let's just like take the hypothetical. Like, had he gone to Sats like right away, like as a standard, right? Like, so you know, there the Bitcoin software doesn't recognize. You know, he didn't name Satoshi's after himself, right? So there was just the smallest possible digit. I think in the original software, it, there was two decimal points, like dollars and cents, right? So it even think to what you're talking about, where he was going after the dollar, you know, it, it rounded that. But essentially, if you if you take the idea that like, you know, he was going to then issue sats, like, well, what's the sat price right now? So Bitcoin wouldn't even be worth a dollar like right now. And I think it's it's an interesting kind of point because it's like, yes, you would have you would have the Unis buy it prob the Unis unit bias problem would exist today potentially, right? But then also Bitcoin would have been like cheap for the last like 12 years. It would have been like essentially. Like, is a sat even more than a cent at this point? Like, no, right? Like, right. So well, that that's where, you know, I would have argued that the highest denomination should have been like 21 billion, you know, then, then I think that would have. Well, I guess what I'm saying is like, you would always have been in a standpoint where early on it was so cheap that you had to sell it in bulk. And so you needed some sort of like bulk clarification. And then as you got later on, you would have always needed to change that because it would have gotten too expensive, right? Because like yeah. early on, if you're making so much of a commodity, then, you know, you need some way to parse it, right? Because like when the guy, when they were first selling Bitcoin, right, the guy, I think the, you know, the first transaction was like $5 for like, I don't know, like 50,000 Bitcoin or something like that, right? It's like a ludicrous amount. So if you were doing that in SATs, I mean, it would also, it would, like, you know, it would have been a crazy transaction. Like, they, I don't think they would have even, it would have been hard for them to even rationalize, right? Uh, so I wonder almost if it would ever have been money to begin with, right? If, like, you didn't initially have, like, you could you could argue that, like, the Bitcoin denomination now may be holding back adoption, but then you could argue as accelerated adoption. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's tricky, right? And then same with like the issuance schedule. So you've got the total number of units, which there's like a unit bias problem. But at the same time, if you have too many units, it makes it feel cheap. And then you, and, and less newsworthy when it like breaks a dollar or a euro. Then, then right. You know, like imagine if we were still like hoping for Bitcoin to break it up, break a cent or something. Yeah, you know, just. <laughs> Yeah, and and that's the thing is we're never going to be able to rerun the experiment. You know, we're never going to be able to. It, this is all just like very hypothetical thinking of because because we we do know that like twenty one million wasn't the perfect number because there's got to be some sort of perfect number that would have been a little bit more advantageous for growth. But it worked well enough to where it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's just more of a curious, you know, in retrospect sort of. Yeah, there's a there's a great early Bitcoiner. I think you referenced him, or I think there was some tweet I responded to you recently. His name is Art Art Forks. Is a guy who's an early miner, but he said the you know thing. He says a great quote about 21 million, where he's like, the only thing that was important was that it was fixed, like known in advance to all users and enforced by the software, or something like that. He essentially boils it down to like you know the number being somewhat arbitrary, and then what mattered was like the the known awareness that everyone had of it. And so therefore, like, it's almost impossible to A-B, A-B test that in like a traditional market. Yeah. 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 It's, it's impossible to A-B test. It's just, you, you've got to pick it and go. And then also the issuance schedule. So, you know, do you issue a majority early on or is it linear, you know, linear to a fixed cap? I thought that was, he chose an asymptotic or like a exponentially declining. Or you would argue, like, I mean, obviously most altcoins have experimented with all these different things, you know, probably not, not too much effect, I would argue at this point. Yeah, it is. But this, but, but both the 21 million plus this do lead me to believe that Satoshi might've been optimistic, but maybe not nearly as optimistic, for example, like, like Hal Finney. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Hal early on is like, oh, a Bitcoin might be worth a million dollars someday. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think, yeah, I wrote that in terms of, like, that was, I think, the next thing I had on my list about, you know, how really is the first person to publicly support him. And then I think, you know, in terms of, like, how well, like, you know, how explains the software, you know, he's really good about giving that, you know, I don't know, I think how is, like, much more approachable and understandable in his quotes. Like, I, I almost wonder sometimes, like, you know, if Hal was not there early on, like how well we would understand Bitcoin, because it's almost like Satoshi's agreement with Hal's, you know, the way that Hal frames it makes it easier for Bitcoin to understand, because Hal's really is the one who, you know, all the ways that we, a lot of the ways that we currently understand Bitcoin and the like optimism that we have about it. And I think that's kind of the interesting thing about Satoshi is that Satoshi was never you know, optimistic or, 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 or positive about Bitcoin in the same way. Like he would be the worst founder. Like if you were VC, I think you would have never invested in Satoshi. Like he, he never wanted, he never did anything really <laughs> to promote Bitcoin in any significant way. Right. But then Hal does all that legwork for him. And so like when he comes in on the mailing list, it really does change the whole discussion. Right. Like I think people almost didn't give the idea a second thought until Hal came in and yeah, he really does mark the change. Like I guess in that group and like how seriously they take the idea. Hal also had the cred, though, too, because he was really well-respected, very active, had come up with his own stuff. At least that's my interpretation in retrospect. You've actually read more of those emails than I have, though. Hey, guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will make it possible to materialize your assets in real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investment in owner-occupied properties. 
Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.io today to register your interest and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from May 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets before prices go up. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Oh, yeah. I mean, how is, you know, I mean, if you're talking about how and the, and the cypherpunk conversation about digital cash, I mean, you know, the cypherpunk mailing list doesn't really come into being until like the early 90s. And it's interesting, like, you know, it's mostly an academic conversation prior to that. You know, so you have I mean, you could argue that in the early 1980s, you know, David Chom, like he basically discovers how to make a working digital cash. The issue is that the technology that he uses to enable it called blind line signatures like is patented so like this is the thing that sort of delays scientific experimentation on digital cash for a long time so if you think about it like this this is one way to think about it. it's like you know 1980 david chom he, he basically figures it out it's just a hierarchical model where there's banks and merchants and users and they each have like special permissions but you know essentially it's a working system and then you know he tries to commercialize it for you know 10 15 years and and then the way the patent protection works in the United States is essentially you know I think the patent for David Chom's blind signatures was 25 years and it expired in 2007 and it's actually kind of interesting cuz if you follow Satoshi's logic on like when he would have started bitcoin he would have started it 2 years before it was released he would have started it around the time that the patent for blind signatures like was expiring and I almost think that there's got to be some connection there because, you know, essentially like there was, there was no way to kind of, this, this meant that someone had developed a technology that was state of the art and then, you know, the innovator group like couldn't use it. Right. So they were essentially kind of blocked for years for trying the system out. And then, you know, the cypherpunks were the only ones who really kind of thought the concept was worthy enough to, to figure like to try to reinvent the wheel. Right. And the way they tried to get around that was, you know, they had to get away from, using blind signatures. And so then they moved away from the, the mint model, right, where there's, you know, kind of a central issuer of the cash and that got them to the peer to peer system, right? So they're by like the mid 90s, like already kind of talking about something that is directionally like Bitcoin, and then how is involved in all of those conversations. And it's also interesting, because he's one of the only ones who does like background reading, like on economics, like the rest of them are very interested in it, like on a practical oh, this should exist on the internet and it's good for privacy and that those were their prevailing values. But how, you know, went to the library, he like looked at the history of banking, you know, he does all like the legwork in terms of figuring out, oh, there was this whole period in the early US history where there was actually free banking and, you know, there was no central federal mint. And so he's the one who kind of like brings in a lot of the other ideas from traditional economics and then is, you know, kind of influential on that group. And also the first one who responds to almost like every digital cash proposal. And I would say some of which were actually anonymous as well. So, you know, Satoshi wouldn't have been unusual in either 
proposing dig a digital cache design to the mailing list or in being anonymous. Uh, there was actually like two previous uh, digital cache versions that were by people who are unknown, you know, and maybe one of those was Satoshi, like we don't know. Yeah, or Hal is Satoshi. Do you uh, do you buy that? <laughs> are, you, uh, are you a Hal proponent for Satoshi? Kimbit? That's a tough one. I don't know. I I don't like the Hal is Satoshi because I think it gets rid of the beautiful qualities about Hal being the first user. So, you know, one of the things I like about Hal being the first Bitcoin user is that because Hal worked for so long to try to start a digital cash, there's like a humility with which he approaches Bitcoin, right? And I think if you look at the broader cryptocurrency space, there's a lot to critique here, right? Like, like you know, Hal like had tried to do this for so long. He tried so many ways and then he wasn't the guy to do it. But then he embraced immediately the person who did, right? And there's just like a tremendous like personal humility <laughs> that you would have, have to have to do that. Because if you think about it, like, you know, you, like imagine you spent your entire life trying to do something and then someone else does it before you. It would be very easy in that situation to act like hostile or dismissive or to like try to destroy the guy's project, <laughs> you know, just because like you wanted like, you know, you really wanted it to be you. And so I think of how as Satoshi, you, you kind of lose that aspect, right? Because one of the things that's interesting about Bitcoin is if you really do view it as like an invention, that's categorically different than, you know, other cryptocurrencies is you, you would have to then approach it with humility, right? You have to say that somebody else solved this, somebody else created it, and the best that I can do is further it. And I don't know, that's why I like Hal as the, as the first user, because he really hits you with that, you know, kind of emotional appeal. And I don't know, I feel like you, you lose that with Hal being a Satoshi. And obviously, I think you, you're, you're a bit of a Hal Satoshi fan. Yeah, I mean, I like a couple things about it. One, is he coincidentally the first transaction <laughs> or is he right, right. just sending it to himself? Yeah, um, I will say I have a bit of a dark horse. Like I've started to become like a, a fan of a different theory, but maybe I'll throw it out there here. But I've started to become like a maybe Julian Assange kind of fan of, as like a theory for, for Bitcoin potentially. This is like kind of based on some recent reading that I've been doing. I haven't found anything groundbreaking here, but yeah, I don't know. That's That's been a recent one for me. Is like, I think Julian's like an interesting part of the cypherpunk lineage and also has like I, I didn't realize that he contributed to the state of the art of, of cryptography and also like you know bitcoin's much more in the i would say like bent in the ethos of, of of the assange style you know hold the powers that be accountable so i don't know i might i might start memeing that one <laughs> a little bit i think like we've kind of lost sight of julian in my conversation other than the part of satoshi got pretty annoyed about the WikiLeaks. Thing, well, though. that's the thing. Well, maybe, may, yeah, the Wahai United. Cover. Maybe it was, <laughs> maybe that's why he needed to leave around that time, you know. <laughs> I, uh, poetic, you know. What if it was, you know, him running with WikiLeaks, you know, or somebody in that orbit, I guess, is what I mean, right? I think that if you look at other groups that were kind of working on cryptography at that level, I guess that's like what I, in reading about Assange, like recently, that I, that I really didn't understand is that he was a cryptographer and then he worked with a lot of other cryptographers and then they like i don't he even like invented this one cryptographic protocol where it like prevents you from if you have a secret key it prevents you from ever being able to prove that you gave over the secret key correctly so it's actually like a cryptographic software that prevents you from giving up your key under torture <laughs> which is like really kind of like a fucked up idea but you know it, it's like one of those examples where he was interested in like the practical application of cryptography and then the use of cryptography as a way to you know give individuals power against the state uh, and i think there is something to be said about like that that viewpoint being relevant to bitcoin and therefore you know maybe someone 
in and around his circle or orbit. And obviously, like WikiLeaks has a technology that's that's in that same bent. I don't know. I might, you know, so, something I've been thinking about. Not a hard memeing yet. <laughs> it's a fun one. It's a it's definitely one of the more fun ones, you know. I, I guess I like Hal too, just because he, he also goes for a PGP. So he entered in, in PGP oh, at the time oh, was considered oh. like a, a weapon. So he, I think, very intimately understood the the cost of being publicly associated and, and tried to an incredible degree of, to stay pseudonymous. So that that's where there's only very few people who practically tried. To yeah, he was that. always so comfortable using his own name, though. That's the other thing with with Hal. It's you, oh, you'd true. sort of you'd sort of have to assume that at some point in life he you know, just decided to like create a pseudonym where it's like, he's mostly just interacted with other pseudonyms and he's such a upfront kind of like respectable every man sort of, sort of guy, you know, it's, uh, I don't know, but yeah, maybe it, maybe he broke the pattern, right. He realized that there was something there. Cause even our pal, right. He re- like, so he was a digital currency proposal from like 2004. Right. He releases under his own name. I think it's on his like personal website with his, with his name on it. Right. So he, he was, I think, you know, house particular stance for cryptography was more like the upright citizen, right. It was, I'm going to like be myself and like follow the rules and the law, but then, I will be disobedient, like, you know, in order and for the greater good, right? I I don't think so. I think he, he's definitely he's definitely okay with breaking the rules. Because he felt uh, there's a couple of moments where he felt pretty strong publicly, I forget. Yeah, there's definitely there like he gets in trouble for running his own remailer at some point, like the FBI shuts down his, his remailer. You know, so he he wasn't afraid to confront authority. I I'm just saying I guess he was more I don't know, I never felt like he wanted to be like disassociated from that. He was willing to take the personal risk of like the reputational risk of of, of standing that up for that, if that makes sense, right? Like so he was willing to say, I how finny, like guy who lives at this road and you know, object to this. And I will, you know, legally in my powers, like object to this. So it's it's difficult for me to see like him like putting on a mask, right? But yeah, I guess for me, it's it's like, he, I mean, he goes through a PGP before because he was afraid of that because there's a threat because that was mm-hmm. a weapons export. So he has there are moments when he has done that. So I think I think for serious things when he was like, okay you know, if I'm the face behind something like PGP, like so Phil Zimmerman was right. If he has to be the face behind something, I think that changes a lot versus Mm -hmm. like also like our pow is kind of like a very primitive half baked sort of concept rather than like a fully baked, you know, this can go survive in the wild sort of sort of, you know, digital cash that they were looking to build. Right. Like Bitcoin is the first we think about, you know, going back to my whole planting Bitcoin story uh, for those folks who haven't read it, planting Bitcoin is a a four-part series around the origin of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is a, a species, a new species of money. If we think about the other forms of, you know, these different cryptocurrencies like eCash, Machami and eCash and B-Money and, and BitGold and, and all this stuff, these were all kind of like half-baked new organisms where most of them didn't survive the operating table, right? Like they never really were made to be I don't even think code was written for most of them. They were more. Yeah, there was definitely like none of them launch in a significant way, like or were used by even like more than a few people. Like they're just they're they are entirely theories. Almost all of them, is if that's what you're saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, and and that's where I think. um, Yeah, that's where what was interesting about Bitcoin's proposal is that like you know the white paper was the teaser, and then just a few months later the code came out. And that, that was, 
that was pretty cool. You know, that's in and Satoshi had been working on it for years, but it's pretty cool that he kind of put it out there that quickly versus like uh, staying more research or theoretical or just maybe second guessing himself. And, but yeah, like trying to ship, ship the code, you know, it, it goes back to the cypherpunk ethos, you know, cypherpunks write code, but at the same time, not as not a lot of stuff ever left the operating table. Yeah, I think like, yeah, if you look at the specific lineage, I think there's only like, I was only able to find like two projects that like released code. And then like, even then they weren't like functional enough to be used. So like one of the ones that's the first ones that like actually has the software is called Magic Cash. It's from like the mid 90s. And it's uh, just a really weird kind of broken version of the system. Like you can kind of create any arbitrary amount of cash you want and then you can redeem it with other people. It's very strange. But actually, I was hanging out with Aaron Van Wordham in, in Amsterdam recently, and he had like an old digital cash textbook and like had like a bunch of stuff from, like, from the 90s. <laughs> and, and it goes through like a lot of these proposals, like and, and how they work. So yeah, it is interesting. Like they were like kind of serious, right? Like they were something things that were studied. I think what they lacked was the usability, right? Like like Bitcoin worked in practice, and like worked in practice from the point that there was code. Whereas the other ones, almost like if you think of them as flying machines, they they like instantly kind of compress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. You know. yeah. No, it's it's and that and I think that also reflects a little bit of like if we want to think about who Satoshi is, like. I, you know, I think he's, he doesn't seem like a hundred percent academic, right? Like the, it's like, is he an academic versus like, does he work at like companies definitely feels like either a mixture of both or more works at companies because he does publish a white paper, but most researchers don't ever think about, I don't know. They don't, they don't ship things like a, like a Bitcoin. They just, they would just post the white paper and that's about it. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I don't know if I've ever thought of Satoshi as being of like a business or academic. I mean, he seems from the cypherpunk group, right? And it's almost like you kind of have to think about the cypherpunk group being sort of removed of that, though I know a lot of them worked for, for companies, right? There's not like a strict overlap there. But yeah, I don't know. I guess like what's the significance? Like if you were to find out Satoshi was like was a college pro pro professor, like would you think like your opinion would be changed at all or, or anything? No, just more of a, uh, no, that someone, someone asked me once, they said, Hey, if you had, if you could ask Satoshi one question, what would it be? I just want to know how he figured it out. Like what, what was he subjected to in his career or academia that led him to this moment? Like, did he take some LSD? I'm just very, <laughs> I'm very curious. Like, I want to know how a mind assembles all of that together i like jameson lop's other answer to that question where he's like what would you ask him and he said what, what are the other projects that you <laughs> that you went to work on oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was a great response uh, i like how he casually just drops that like i got i got other shit to do yeah, certainly, you know, we, we'll never know what it looks like. But yeah, I guess in terms of other topics about the white paper, maybe we can talk about kind of the state of the art for the white paper. You know, it certainly seems like a lot of the sections of the white paper are, you know, sort of not super relevant anymore. I guess, how do you look at that as someone who's, you know, active in the industry trying to figure out how to move Bitcoin forward? You know, how do you look at the white paper today? Do you, do you think it's still like a usable document in that way? I would argue probably, you know, not so much. 
I, I think the state of content in the space, whether it be, you know, kind of higher level folks like myself, Pomp or others that are more, you know, more for a mainstream audience or more technical people, you know, like a, like a Jimmy song or someone else, like there's so much content now and there's so many explanations of Bitcoin that I just don't think the white paper is, unless you're very, you're, you're technical, like you're very technical, like an engineer, it's just, it's just going to go over your head and you're going to, then feel disenfranchised with Bitcoin because you're like, okay, I guess it's too complicated. I'm not really going to get it. That's how I felt when people recommended the white paper to me. It felt like a bullshit, like layer of unnecessary jargon just to make me feel <laughs> like I wasn't cool enough because I'm not an engineer to understand how it works versus like, you can explain how Bitcoin works in like three paragraphs, you know? So I, I don't think, I, I, I find, I found it a little bit gatekeepy. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I felt like it was kind of the early people in the space were mainly engineers and it was a gatekeepy thing for me. That's how I felt. Well, I guess about I, it. Uh, the reason I asked that is it always felt to me like, and I still refer to this in my work as well. I, I feel like Bitcoin as envisioned in the Satoshi white paper is essentially unfinished and it's, you know, it's unfinished because essentially, you know, his proposals for scaling the system to, you know, include a larger amount of users, right? That's kind of like, if you go back to Bitcoin's kind of original, you know, question hanging over, it was like, you know, how many people could use the system given the system constraints? You know, a lot of his writing on that in the white papers, like the sim simplified payments verification and the, the privacy stuff, right? There, there are some sections of the white paper uh, reclaiming disk, disk space as well that I would say are probably like, now just irrelevant like the developer community has moved past them but then also like the developer community maybe like i don't know maybe if you disagree with this but like needs to figure out an answer for that stuff or like you know eventually it is the point of bitcoin development continuing in some way to you know figure out that path forward if that makes sense yeah i mean satoshi always wanted this to be taken over by the community so i i don't think you know, we're, we're so far past kind of his involvement that it's sort of irrelevant in a way, kind of what he would perceive it as now. Just it, it takes on, I think, kind of whatever the community feels like it should take on, right? Now, of course, there's not a full consensus on that all the time, so there's always, you know, back and forth on that. But ultimately, I think, you know, it, I think it's it's relevant in the terms of, like, seeing what originally kind of the, the reason why. I think it's the reason why that matters a lot, where it's like, Look, this was, I mean, he put, you know, he puts the quote from the Times and the first block and, and, and it's planted right in the middle of the financial crisis. Like people forget how dismal the situation is. So I think contextually that helps a lot. We're like people in Web3 now are like, oh, Bitcoin, that's boring. I'm just going to skip over that. And I'm like, it's actually such a fascinating story. And when you think about when he planted it and where it is now, it's an incredible part of the ecosystem. And so for folks who are, you know, more Web3 or like really big blockchain folks, they just kind of skip over Bitcoin like this. Oh, it's just money, whatever, who cares? I think money is the most important thing in this space and by far, I think the most impactful for humanity. So I, I do think like embellishing, not embellishing, but maybe just like bringing out some color from that early story is a nice sort of like narrative building exercise versus, uh, you know, just kind of like cold, hard, rational, like here's a white paper mm. or here's, yeah, here's the technicals. 
Yeah, I feel like I guess maybe if I riffing off where you're saying like what's the relevance of the white paper in the larger community, I, I would say if it was it would be it would be sad if if a lot of crypto people generally didn't read it. And I would also question like the level at which they would understand the industry at all. Because I think, you know, a lot of the things that came after Bitcoin, whether Ethereum or other, other cryptocurrencies, you know, they, they build on assumptions about what Bitcoin could or couldn't do. And to the extent that they're still, you know, kind of experimental systems you know they inherit a lot of those assumptions and i feel like without understanding bitcoin and its current operation to a very high degree i question what how you would you know determine the validity of any of these other things i guess with the exception other than you would have to take them the, the view that you know it's sufficient for these other cryptocurrency systems to exist and, and therefore you know you don't have to learn about bitcoin but i don't know i, I still think some of them you know their their designs their assumptions are so ex they're so tied to what they perceived bitcoin's limitations to be that i still can't get past the feeling that like you know the other cryptocurrencies they're then only going to be as successful as those limitations were true right so if they are the product of assumptions about bitcoin's design then they would they essentially have to have yeah, there's some relationship there right so if you're working on like proof of work alternatives well then that works only useful to the extent that there is a need for a proof of work alternative right and it seems like what we've learned about you know proof of work consensus mechanism is over over time uh, is one is they're they're highly secure. Like two, there there tends to be a convergence, right, where the Bitcoin is the largest proof of work network keeps getting larger, and then the environmental concerns of which, you know, there was a lot of you know strife about that early on, you know, are diminishing through other creative solutions that aren't actually with it like protocol intrinsic at all. So yeah, I don't know. I guess like if if there were people from like the crypto space, I, I would probably encourage them to read it, and I I think I would question like how well you know, they could possibly understand the, you know, what they were trying to do without understanding the Bitcoin white paper, white paper in some way. Right. But I, I think you'd be surprised. <laughs> I, I think you'd be pretty surprised, though, about how many people like I've met. So, I mean, I've, you know, I went to like NYC NFT and I'm out here in Lisbon for Breakpoint. These are not Bitcoin conferences, but I find it interesting just to kind of see their perspective. That's where you know, I saw the perspective at NYC NFT around how people think like an ETH standard when they're buying an NFT and flipping it. So they bought it for 0.1 ETH and they flipped, for, flipped it for 0.3. And they don't even think about money at all. They're just like, they're thinking in like a ETH is their gambling token. But in a way, if that's how more people start using that, then that's an interesting insight that maybe we can bring back to Bitcoin. So yeah, and that's why I'm out here, you know, at, at the Solana conference as well for Breakpoint. And it just... It is interesting to see, like, when I talk to people about Bitcoin, the general feeling I have amongst these communities is they're like, oh, that's just like, it's boring, it's just money. Like, they totally gloss over it, where they're like, I don't know, I, I want something to go play with, basically, is the right. vibe. And so I, I think that most of them really don't grok anything at all around, like, why a hard cap makes sense. I don't think many of them have even read just a little bit about the 2008 financial crisis. It seems like most are like <clears throat> more into, you know, it's like, look, these are all speculative games, right? Like NFTs and yield farming and <clears throat> they want to fiddle with things and, and, and kind of mess with it. And the idea that like, it's also really hard to get your head around like the idea that like a lot of the parameters that Bitcoin set originally are perfect, which they, they worked well enough to work. Mm. So, so perfect, you know, it's in functionality, I'd say it's, pretty dang solid but you know a lot of them i think are uncomfortable with that idea too 
So it's, uh, it is interesting. I think that like the Bitcoin story and that's where I wrote like planting Bitcoin. And that's where I think like planting Bitcoin was one to kind of like make that origin story just a little bit more, a little bit more tangible and real and, and emotional. And then also to take out some of the Bcash FUD and then as well to attract some of the more multi-coiner audience, which was, you know, they, they need, they need more of a story behind it rather than like, cool, it's just money. It's like, well, well, it's a very, very special kind of money that came about at just the right moment and had all the right conditions to, to survive till today. I mean, you and I have seen 10,000 cryptocurrencies come and go in our time <laughs> and none of them have, you know, you know, taken Bitcoin off its throne. So there's some incredible, powerful story to be told around that. And that's where I, I tried my best to tell the story. And a lot of others, ha- a lot of others uh, have as well. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw in Bitcoin Amsterdam, I was on a panel in Bitcoin in the media and there was some other people from the, ma- the mainstream media there, including this one woman from the Financial Times. And, you know, she kept saying that Bitcoin was an invention and, and that it was an, a Ponzi scheme at the same time. And then at one point in the conversation, I asked her, well, you know, if Bitcoin was a was a Ponzi scheme, like what did it invent? You know, like you keep saying that it's an invention. Well, then what? You know, if it is just a Ponzi scheme, which is a prior invention, like someone invented that. Charles Ponzi invented that. That's why he's credited with it, invented that inventing that scheme. You know, what what was it? And so I guess you know, it, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the fundamental drama in the space is about you know what is it that Bitcoin invented, right? What is Satoshi's invention? And then at what point, you know, to your point, you know, if we accept that Bitcoin is money. You know, and, and again, like, I don't, that seems like within the larger crypto space, you know, not something that people have conceded. You know, it's like, what point do you concede that an invention has been created? And then how long do you sort of, you know, tolerate or how long is it appropriate to like have like a whole, you know, group of scientists or people like attempting to then make a better solution to it? Right. If your point is that a lot of these other groups, right, like they're they're sort of uninterested in, in the money aspect of Bitcoin. They're they're trying to create, you know financial markets or like speculative games i think was the word they used like you know at what point do they accept the the invention of bitcoin and then how do they respond to that i don't know that that to me still feels like one of the dramas right it's like what is how long does this go on what is the state of it and then you know it just it just seems 14 years after that you know there still is really no consensus on what bitcoin has achieved right it's still like a small group of people within the whole world right who would acknowledge that bitcoin invented anything useful yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, and I think, I mean, I think Bitcoin's been, been pretty clearly identified as a money by most people, you know, even, even amongst folks. Who <laughs> I mean, I, I thought that, and then you have an experience like that and you're like, Oh my God, you know, <laughs> I don't sure, know. I mean, yeah. but yeah, these others, like other smaller monies will exist, of course. And then, you know, how does a money gain adoption? Like the, like the growth acquisition sort of story, you know, like that's where I think these speculative games, that, you know, Solana and Ethereum have bring in a lot of people into, you know, owning the underlying. Same with Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin was primarily bought in bull runs because people were speculating. And then people stick around because they hear about the story and they're like, oh, okay, this actually, I now I understand money. But yeah, it, what do we want to cover in the last five minutes here? Because we only got five minutes to wrap this up. That's a good question. I don't know. I think we went through most of the stuff I had in, the, in my thread. You know, curious if you're putting out anything today in, in honor of the day or... Yeah, I did a, I did more of a generic tweet, just kind of honoring the day. Maybe I should I should dust off the uh, the old tweet thread from like 2019 where I did that. Kind of like the uh, kind of like the word cat, like how Satoshi describes Bitcoin and in, in the white paper and the word of cash and how he refers to it uh-huh. as gold and precious metals. 
Yeah, I still think like anybody who hasn't read your Planning Bitcoin series, I'd definitely give that a, a pretty hearty endorsement, you know, so always approve of you <laughs> circulating that because I do think it's, you know, I know some of your tweets are a bit more, you know, for the for the crowd, but you definitely have some deep cuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I actually had some people reply to me. They're like, I just found your blogs and I didn't realize that you, <laughs> you had a blog and I just thought you were kind of like a pumpy tweeter. Yeah, no, it's, it's unfortunately the algorithm in the audience incentivizes the uh, shorter tighter tweets versus a long form content. But I try to layer it in there once in a while. Yeah, I guess maybe final thoughts on like the the white paper, just, you know, maybe next next 10 years, what it, what it looks like, impact. I mean, I, I, obviously, like one of the things we didn't touch was just, you know, how widespread it is. There's government agencies that host the white paper now. The city of Miami, like, you know, has it on their website, you know, it's it's been pretty interesting to see all the all the groups that have, have you know tried to preserve it in some way yeah i mean the white paper even if it's a bit more technical and people don't go back to it it's still like that original document right it's the declaration of independence or the magna carta or you know one of these sort of kind of like line in the sand moments of freedom or liberty or and so i, I do think that it'll kind of always be memorialized as that right like the white paper is kind of like this manifesto Right. It's like our collective manifesto that stands for what we care about. So that I think that's kind of like my frame of reference for all, all of that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I definitely think today I mostly, you know, use the Bitcoin white paper as a way to kind of understand. And, and I, I think it has kind of frozen in time as one of those, you know, things that you can kind of reflect on and see how the industry has changed. You know, I think we've moved out of the period where the white paper is you know, contested and it's still the main way that people understand the industry. It seems like development has, has definitely evolved beyond the white paper. But, you know, someone who's always trying to still learn about Bitcoin, you know, I do use the white paper a lot. I do go back to the certain sections of it. I look at criticisms of certain sections and, you know, even just like, you know, read a lot about like the specific words and the intentions that Satoshi used and, and how accurate they're, they are. So I, I do think it's a great learning tool still. Uh, I definitely would encourage people to use it like on those grounds, even though it's not, you know, certainly something that provides Bitcoin forward direction and i think like maybe that's you know the thing that i was asking a little bit implicitly before was you know i think we've moved out of the era where the bitcoin white paper is giving us forward direction as a community but yeah it'll always be i think it'll always have a place as something that we can like go back to to see how far we've come totally i think it's definitely that that you know kind of momentous occasion of of seeing how far we've come and seeing what what the original principles were and what what this is all for. I'm glad we haven't tried to make any amendments to it. I would have been. <laughs> <laughs> In tech, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, technically, any new uh, new Bitcoin core is a, an amendment. I guess that's true, right? So then that's like the Bill of Rights in your, in your view. <laughs> I guess we, we, we can't take, we don't take it too literally here. Well, cool, man. Well, thanks for stopping by everybody else. I guess, you know, stay tuned for coverage today on Bitcoin Magazine. A lot of stuff going on in the white paper today. We actually I had a great op-ed. I'd just give a quick shout out to one of the first mine to, to be on the network in, in 2009, very early, wrote, wrote an op-ed. Uh, today, a man by the name of Justin Trammell. Uh, a lot of great insights into Bitcoin's history from him. I've had a number of great conversations with him over the years. And got some active spaces coming up. Later today, you'll hear from uh, Mr. Dylan LeClaire and Jeff Ross from the Bitcoin Magazine Pro team. We're going to be talking a lot more about the current financial markets and the doom and gloom there. So thanks for tuning in. I appreciate you listening. And definitely give Dan and his blog a follow as well. So thanks, everybody.
Appreciate everyone. Thanks for having me, y'all. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today.